easy for us to sort of go off into our separate rooms to plan this and do a bit each. So I'm going to talk about the Old Testament and then hand over to Becca to talk about the New Testament. Um, we're going to talk about the big story of the Bible because we haven't got long. We wanted to really pick out just a couple of themes and I'm sure we'll still maybe go off on little tangents. But we've tried to be quite strict about what really is the big story here that we want to share with people this morning. Some of you will know this story really, really well. Some of you might not know it, or you might think you know it, and, and maybe this way of looking at the story might be slightly different for you. I've found that even though it's a story I know well, I've always found that every time I kind of step back and think about what this big story is, it means something new to me, and it has some, some new power. So I hope it can do that for you this morning as well. So the big story of the Bible. God creates the universe at the very, very beginning. Genesis is absolutely fascinating as a book and it's well, well worth a read if you haven't had the time to read it yourself. But he creates the world out of complete chaos and he does it out of love. One of the things that's amazing about the world that God creates is he puts humans right at the center of it. And he does that because he loves humans so much. He wants to create a world that's for them, that's perfect for them. So he creates this beautiful, amazing world for humans to live in here on earth in the Garden of Eden. And he gives them some quite simple tasks to do. And what those tasks really amount to is he wants them to enjoy living in that world, to make the most of it, and actually to make it even better, to use all of their wonderful creative potential to kind of help this world to flourish and grow and become even more beautiful over time. So it's not an onerous or a difficult task he gives humans. It's a really beautiful, wonderful one. What happens is that those humans, Adam and Eve, decide not to trust fully in God's plan for them, not to trust fully in what God has provided them, but to try and take control for themselves. They think maybe we'd be better off if we sort of set the agenda here, if we tried to, to find out things for ourselves. And that breaks their relationship with God. God can't trust them to live in that perfect world anymore, and so they're expelled. And they go out into a world that's much more like our world now. Now, one of the things that comes up again and again through this story is you will find that despite the fact that humans keep letting God down, he just can't stop loving us in a way that means he can't help constantly coming back and trying to bring us closer to him. So we'll see throughout this, and the big story that we're going to tell this morning is a story of, of what we'd call God's rescue plan for humans. His constant attempts to try and rescue us, to bring us back into that perfect state, that perfect world. Now, the first part of this is um, in the Old Testament, where God makes some quite specific promises to a few key people. One of the first stories that some of you might recognize is the story of Noah. In the story of Noah humans now outside of this perfect world are trying to get by as best they can and they're further away from God than even they were before. So they make even more mistakes. Because they're not living right with God, they're even less perfect than they were before. And the world becomes chaotic and dark and dangerous. And God decides that he needs to start again. This creation isn't working. And he sends a flood to destroy the world. Not as a punishment, but because he can't bear to see humans living in this imperfect world. He wants a creation that's perfect for them. So he sends a flood and he saves just a few animals and Noah and his family. And God makes the first of his promises. And he says to Noah, we're going to restart. This flood is going to help us create a new creation. 
and you and your family are going to make it beautiful like it was supposed to be. You're going to spread, you're going to save the animals, you're going to create a new beautiful creation. Noah lets God down, just like Adam and Eve had let God down. He can't do it. And so chaos returns, Noah ends up isolated and alone. And many generations later, one of Noah's descendants, many families live through this world of chaos and, and disorder. One of Noah's descendants called Abraham and his wife Sarah also come close to God and hear what God is saying to them. And God decides that he's going to have another go at rescuing his creation. He says to Abraham and his wife, you and your family, you're going to be the part of my rescue plan. You're going to make it happen. You're going to help me in my task like I tried to do with Noah and with Adam and Eve. And again, they let God down. God, throughout this, has kept coming back to try and help these people, to guide them. And as he goes through these attempts at rescuing humans, he's always trying more to bring humans back to him. Each time he makes new promises. With Noah, he promised that he'd never again destroy the world. He was going to make this work somehow. With Abraham, he promises that it will be him and his family that will spread and spread this new beautiful creation. Now, Abraham and his family couldn't do it, but generations later, some of Abraham's descendants in their family, there is a man called Moses. I can't tell this story better than the Prince of Egypt, by the way. If you haven't seen it, you must. The story of Moses is that God comes closer to Moses maybe than to anyone he has since Adam and Eve. And Moses goes supported by God to save the people of Israel, the Jewish people, from slavery in Egypt, where they're experiencing probably an example of just how broken, how oppressive our world can become when God isn't in it. So Moses is sent to save them from slavery. It's a literal rescue. And Moses goes and takes those people out of slavery, parts the Red Sea so that they can pass and go out out of Egypt. So those people are rescued. They do escape slavery. And God makes another promise to them and to Moses. Each time these promises get bigger and clearer, he's really trying to help humans see what the plan is. So now he says to Moses, I'm going to give you a place, a promised land where you can live. It's like the original place I made, this perfect place where there'll be nothing stopping you from living freely and safely in joy and in happiness. And he also gives the people of Israel some really clear rules about what they need to do in order to be able to live in that place. He's realized that humans aren't able to make the rules for themselves. Every time they do, it collapses into chaos and war and slavery and poverty. So he gives them rules to help them live by. First 10, the 10 commandments, but eventually, Many, many rules, if you've ever read Leviticus, 613 rules in total. That's how hard God is trying to really spell out to the people of Israel what they need to do in order to be part of God's rescue plan. And again, the same story. It doesn't work. Those people let God down. Those people do still get their place, their promised land even though they've broken their promises to God. God still gives them that perfect place. He takes them to a land 
flowing with milk and honey, a perfect land where they can be safe from their enemies, where they can prosper. Unsurprisingly, even in this perfect land, the humans just can't live by the rules that God has set for them. They develop cities and kingdoms. They develop wealth. They have opportunities to be safe from their enemies, but instead they fight amongst themselves and with others. The wealthy get greedy and exploit the poor. There's segregation, there's abuse, there's corruption. And eventually, the city of Jerusalem itself is sieged. The world becomes war-torn again, and that beauty and that order that could have been created has failed once again. Now, one theme of the story so far, and it really is an unfinished story at this point before I hand over to Becca, is that God keeps his promises, even though humans repeatedly fail to keep theirs. And in fact, he makes the promise bigger and clearer and more helpful every single time. He makes the rescue plan ever clearer for humans, but humans still continue to let them down. Every time that humans fail to live up to God's hopes and expectations, they're nearly destroyed by the consequences. Jealousy, warfare, murder, famine. But God rescues them every single time, and he does that because he loves them, because he's always wanted this perfect place, this perfect creation for humans. Now, despite the amazing, miraculous things that God does to rescue humans in the Old Testament, there are a couple of ways in which God's rescue plan in the Old Testament are limited. The first one is that it comes with a certain amount of obligation or expectation. God tries in the Old Testament a rescue plan that involves saying to humans, if you want to live in a perfect creation, this is what it's going to have to look like. You need to follow these rules, 10 rules and then 613 rules. It's incredibly specific. It's so specific that even to get humans to understand the importance of things that should be obvious to them, some of the most beautiful things in the world, family, God, rest, he has to create a day in the week and specifically tell them what they need to do on that day. There are 36 rules just for the Sabbath specifically what they need to do in that day, just so humans can even think about having a relationship with God, respecting their families, respecting each other, celebrating what is beautiful and good in the world. So it's limited by this idea that humans have to act and behave in a certain way to get rescued in the Old Testament. And even with those really specific rules and roles for different people, they're not able to do it. The second way that God's rescue plan is limited in the Old Testament is that it's only ever actually a partial rescue. We've used the rescue, um, the phrase rescue for a reason, because it's useful to think about the people in the Old Testament being rescued, but never quite saved. Now the difference between those two things is that if someone was drowning and you pulled them into a lifeboat, then you've rescued them from immediate danger. But if they're on a lifeboat in the middle of stormy seas, where they could easily fall back in again, where they're still exposed to the same dangers, they're not saved. To my mind, they're not saved until they're safe back at shore, exactly where they should be. So in the Old Testament, God rescues the people. He rescues Noah from the flood. He rescues the people of Israel from slavery. But in the Old Testament, those people are never saved. They're still always in danger. So it's looking pretty bleak at this point. Um, <laughs> but during this time, 
God makes uh, a new promise, a final promise. And he says, um, one day I am going to fully save, not just rescue, but save my kingdom. And this time it's going to be different. It's going to be forever and it's going to be for everyone. Not just Abraham's family, not just this particular people group. It's going to be a time when people won't just have the laws of the rescue plan, but they'll have it written in their hearts and minds. They will know the rescue plan inside out. They will feel it. They will sense it. They will be able to be close to it. They will be able to let it lead their lives. I always think this is the difference between someone trying to construct a very complicated piece of IKEA furniture following the instructions versus someone who's just a carpenter inside and out, um, someone who knows what to do. And it's going to be led by a person who's not just going to keep the chaos and destruction at bay, but someone who's going to go into the chaos and defeat it and come out of the other side, having completely conquered it, so that people have nothing to fear. This person is going to destroy corruption and injustice, and this is God's new promise. And so the Old Testament, and another word for testament is promise, ends with this idea and looks forward to the new promise or the New Testament. Um, and this story is the second part of the Bible, and this is the, the world that we are living in. And the person that Christians believe it goes into the chaos and has come out the other side victorious is Jesus, as we know. And Jesus makes it possible to unlimit God's rescue plan. And so when the experts of Israelite law say to him, you're breaking one of the 36 rules of the Sabbath whilst Jesus is collecting food for the poor, Jesus says, I'm beyond the rules. I'm fulfilling God's rescue plan right here, right now. I don't need these laws because I know how to fulfill his rescue plan in my heart. When Jesus is asked which one of the 613 laws are most helpful for following God properly, he says, away with these laws. Here are two new laws. Love God and love other people. That's it. That's all you need to the shock and awe and horror and disgust of people listening. He says, this is all you need. Have this love in your heart. Know me. And these laws, these two things you need to do will be written on your heart. He upsets the social order by mixing with the wrong people who society has decided have no useful role at all. Prostitutes, adulterers, outcasts, people with disabilities, people with mental illness, people who are unemployed. He mixes with them and he centers them and he cares about them. He breaks down the structures of this very, very set society. He says the weakest are the greatest. He says children should be a model to adults. He confides in women just as much as he confides in men. He doesn't care about race, profession, ability, history or anything else. Jesus is the rescue plan because he rescues us by saving us, by making us truly able to be a part of the rescue plan ourselves. And this is why Jesus uh, is referred to as a savior and a king, because he is the one that goes into the chaos by sacrificing his own life and defeating it and telling it it has no power here. It has no power over our lives. And he symbolizes this. You'll notice that in a lot of the Old Testament stories, that chaos is represented by water. The water at the beginning, the water that floods the earth, the water of the sea that the Israelites are carried through. And Jesus goes into that water in chaos and says, you have no power here and you come out the other side victorious. Um, which is one of the wonderful things about baptism that we're going to see later, that we can follow in his footsteps and look at the water in the chaos and say, you have no power here. He says, follow me. 
and I will not only rescue you and make you safe, but I will enable you to be a part of my rescue plan. I'm gonna take the chaos of human selfishness, loneliness, unrest, stress, and I'm gonna turn it into something beautiful, just like Adam and Eve were given the job of right at the beginning. He makes us truly human as we were meant to be, just like Adam and Eve, so that we can be rescued and be a rescue to others. And I think that's why a brunch like today is so exciting, um, because it's a lovely bit of food and some nice chat, but that in itself is the rescue plan in action. As a family together, being rescued, enjoying that freedom, enjoying that rest, enjoying and creating the beauty that God has intended for us. Whatever chaos we have in our lives, Jesus promises to turn it into something beautiful. Whatever roles and expectations we couldn't fulfill, we have no strings attached. They are gone and we are totally accepted in Jesus because he has fulfilled the expectations. He has taken the obligations on himself and he has abolished them and says, you live a free life in me. Now we're talking about an unfinished story and Christians believe that this story isn't finished and that Jesus promises that one day he will not just rescue our hearts and minds but he will restore the whole world so that it's not just that our hearts and minds are peaceful but there is real peace everywhere. No warfare, no poverty, no division. And this is the hope that Christians have that the peace we experience in all its realness and joy today will be echoed across the whole world. But for now I think it's worth just thinking about before I finish. Where are we in this rescue plan? Have we allowed God to rescue us? Can we feel his arm extending to us saying, I want to rescue us? Are we rescued? But we kind of have that sense of, I don't really know what it means to be rescued. Or I come, I feel this obligation every day. I feel like to be rescued, I need to justify my rescue. I need to meet these expectations. And I think um, there's always opportunity for prayer here. So there's someone nearby who wants to pray for you. That's brilliant. And just and have a think about where am I in my rescue plan? Do I truly know what it means to be rescued by God and how liberating and freeing being a part of that rescue plan is? I think we're going to hear a little bit about Alpha, which definitely links to this in a minute. Um, but I'm going to finish there. Um, yeah, just this excitement of this rescue plan. Have that in your minds as we go on to the final bit of the sermon. <laughs>